0: Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilly with you on Tuesday, September the 1st. It is the first day of spring, Annika Smithhurst.
1: Could not be happier as someone that lives in Canberra. Been waiting for this moment, my favourite day of the year.
0: Never thought we'd get here. It's been such a strange year, but things are looking up. The weather's coming good. Hopefully Melbourne will be out of lockdown soon. Uh, Later, we're going to brief you on survivor's guilt.
1: Yeah, you'll hear a story of a guy who should have been at the Christchurch shooting, but he took a trip to Melbourne instead.
2: I do regret not being there. I regret not being able to do something and whatever that might, something might have been. It might have saved a life.
0: Yeah, the sliding door stories of survival and the guilt that can come with it. Before we get to that, let's get into the big news of the
1: day. In July, we were warned that we could be arbitrarily detained if we go to China. And now, an Australian TV anchor has been arrested.
3: Currently, I'm the anchor for the global business show on CGTN, the China Global Television Network.
0: Yeah, not anymore, unfortunately. That's the voice of Chung Li, a University of Queensland graduate. The Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, says the Australian government was notified that she'd been detained on August 14.
1: At this stage, there's no word on whether she's been charged with anything. Her personal profile has now been taken off the TV network's website.
0: Yeah, and I noticed the family have remained fairly careful in their language. They've said that uh, due process will be observed and they look forward to a satisfactory and timely conclusion of the matter and they respect that process and said there'll be no further comment at this time. And a national bushfire warning system is one of the key recommendations from an interim report into the devastating summer fires that claimed 33 lives. Is What we've dealt with isn't unprecedented. It means this is what we're going to have to deal with into the future. And what it's telling us is there needs to be a more nationally coordinated approach in terms of preparedness, in terms of fighting these disasters and where the trigger points are for the federal government to
1: get involved. That was Agriculture Minister David Littleproud. It also says that we need to be prepared for more frequent and intense natural disasters and that a national cabinet like the one being used to deal with COVID-19 could be used to coordinate the response. It also
0: warned that hundreds of thousands of Australians live in high-risk areas, including 99% of the 10,000 properties lost last year. Annika, do you expect some pretty big revelations out of this bushfire Royal Commission? Do you think things will really change that much, the way we handle these disasters?
1: I do have a bit of faith in it. I reported on the Black Saturday fires in Victoria. They had a big probe after that, and it actually did trigger some changes. And it's not just about, um, I guess, land management and, and things we can do in the long term, like climate change. It's how we deal with them and how we live with them. And that includes warning systems, apps on phones, getting messages out to people, so It's terrible that we have to go through this to get change, but often it does help.
0: And there was some cynicism that Scott Morrison called this Royal Commission as a, I guess, a way of pushing back uh, on the criticism he faced for his handling of the bushfires. Uh, Do you think there was an element of that, or do you think there really were some important lessons we needed to learn from this Royal Commission?
1: Look, natural disasters of this scale, we often have commissions, probes, inquiries into them. So I think we were always going to get there. It may have helped him politically as well. We know how much he was struggling after that ill-timed trip to Hawaii and some of the interactions he had on his return. So I have no doubt that it helped him, but I think this is the right course anyway. In Victoria, the countdown is on, with a roadmap out of stage four and three restrictions expected to be revealed on Sunday.
2: A further week's data, plus consultations on many of the practical issues, I stress adding to the many thousands of discussions that we've already had, will mean that we can put forward a a blueprint, a roadmap uh, that has more certainty
0: yeah millions of Victorians looking forward to that roadmap which as you heard, he promised on Sunday coming uh, that was Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews. Yesterday there were 73 new cases in Victoria and Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton is hoping that'll drop even lower.
2: I would hope we're in the you know um, in the ballpark of 40 or 50 by the end of the week. We'll see if that's, if that's the case. Now,
1: that lockdown is meant to end on September 13, but the Premier says that that's not necessarily a guarantee.
2: We can't rule out settings in two weeks' time. It's very difficult to know what those settings will be. They'll have to be guided by the data, by the science and by the very best medical uh, advice. What we'll provide on Sunday uh, will be the plan that we intend to put in place.
0: People will also be looking forward to Friday, I imagine, Annika, because there seems to be this um, stoush brewing, or at least a, a tough conversation at the National Cabinet about borders.
1: Yeah, I read about this on the weekend. It's interesting. They want to not shut down entire states. They want to be able to class hotspots in a sort of colour-coded system. They use it in Denmark, they use a traffic light system. If somewhere's red, say Melbourne, you can't go in. If somewhere's orange, they might have a few cases. You can travel, but you have to quarantine. And green areas are free to travel. And it's something the Prime Minister really wants to get in place by Christmas. Uh, Another good thing, if you're single and you haven't been able to go out and see other friends uh, during the lockdown, they're looking at maybe tinkering with that so that people living alone have a bit more freedom.
0: And do you think you know, that might be the way, you know, Scott Morrison wants to move things forward. But do you think the state's premiers are really going to change their approach? They seem to be getting a lot of positive feedback from their constituents on these tough approaches.
1: (laughs) Especially leading up to a couple of state elections. Look, I think ultimately everybody does want to open up. It's good for the economy and we've all got family and friends interstate, but you're right. They're not going to do it if they're going to lose any political skin on this. I think it is an ultimate aim to get there by Christmas. And if we do have a standardised approach, people will know when to shut down borders. That Danish example I talk about is consistent across the country. It's per 100,000 people. We really know when areas are dangerous and when they're not, and that's what they want to do here. 70%
0: 70% of Australians who've died from the coronavirus have been in aged care and now another $563 million is being poured in to help the sector. Is Health Minister Greg Hunt announcing the funding.
4: The ability for families to care for older residents who uh, will take time away from an aged care facility. All of these things come together with a very simple goal, to save lives and protect lives within our aged care facilities and across Australia.
1: Among the key goals of the policy is stopping workers from doing shifts at multiple facilities, which we know is a big risk factor for spreading coronavirus. There'll also be more money for extra staff, more PPE and more training.
0: And the aged care minister, Richard Colbeck, uh, is standing firm. He's ruled out resigning from his position. He's been copying it since failing to answer some very basic questions uh, like how many people have died in homes at an inquiry last week.
1: heard those stories of someone that was supposed to be in the Twin Towers on September 11, but survived because of a random decision, like going to get a new set of reading glasses.
0: Instead of making a left to go to the elevators, I made a right and I went into the concourse and I went to an optometrist's shop and I was being fitted for reading glasses. I needed new glasses. And when I got out to the street, I knew something terrible had happened. Yeah, or comedian Seth MacFarlane, who only survived because he missed his flight sat there and watched the second plane hit and they announced what flight it was. And I turned
2: to the guy next to me and, and said, my, my God, you know, that, that was the flight I was supposed to be on. I, I was late. I missed it.
1: Incredible stuff. Look, today's briefing looks at these stories, the stories of people who avoided death by chance or intuition, and then had to live with the survivor's guilt that comes from that.
0: And Annika, you were in an earthquake and it was a random decision that moved you out of harm's way.
1: Yeah, we decided to have dinner on the beach. I was in Indonesia on Gili Island, Gili T, and there was an enormous earthquake as we were standing on the beach. Now, uh, my accommodation was damaged. I had to sleep outside for three days. Uh, Walls came down, which moments before we were walking next to. I have no idea why that happened and the decisions that led to that and why we made them, but it it was something I reflected on for a long time afterwards.
0: Yeah, and there's so many of these stories actually also from our own team. One of our producers, Claire, was supposed to take a job in Christchurch, but something told her not to, and if she'd taken it, she would have died in an earthquake.
3: There was a job um, in television, which I quite liked the glitz and glamour of. It was in my home city of Christchurch, so that was going to be near all of my family. But for some reason, it just never felt right. And for some reason, I took a radio job at the other end of the country when the Christchurch earthquake struck back in 2011, it should have been my first day at the job. And unfortunately, and I think of him every single day, especially still in this career, unfortunately the, the guy who did take that internship, Reece, um, was in the building at the time and he actually lost his life that day. Survivor's guilt was pretty hefty initially. Like, I mean, I was busy working on covering the story. I remember distinctly the, the day that... I found out. then, as the months and years have gone on, it's inspired me, I guess, to to do better and to to do you know a really good job. Um, every day, I sort of feel like I've got this person behind me in this weird way because you know I should have been there and and he he lost his life that day and I was really lucky and I'm really lucky to still be in a career that he loves so much, and so that's what inspires me, I guess now, but that's been years of work to get to this point.
1: Claire, our producer, trying to take inspiration from guilt and tragedy. Now, Tyler Harrison Hunt has an incredible story, also from Christchurch. He was meant to be in the mosque last year where the deadly shooting happened. But instead, he
2: went to Melbourne. Usually every Friday, most Fridays, um, I attend Friday prayer at Al-Nor. Um But this particular Friday, I was actually visiting my sister in Melbourne and the attack happened.
1: So, Tyler, if you weren't in Melbourne that day, what would have your routine been in Christchurch that morning?
2: I have my own business. So I usually go to work, um, do some work with the kids and then go to Friday prayer, which is around midday. And then after the prayer, usually we'll hang out with some mates or or go home and then we'd usually go back to work. So that's what a usual day is like in in New Zealand, in Christchurch. So usually they they have to... Have breaks during their work times, which again was a, another blessing for my father-in-law to be with us still because his workmate, and you'll find stories like this all the time, but his workmate at work actually was mucking around and saying, oh, what are you going for? And he was grabbing him and you know have, having a bit of a play fight with him before he was leaving. Those two minutes that he was play fighting with my father-in-law meant that he was late for the Friday prayer, which means that uh, my father-in-law is still here today. Which, wow. And you'll find stories like that everywhere.
0: So that that anecdote there is completely random that they were play fighting and that saved his life. What about your choice to go to Melbourne? What went into that? Was there any sense of intuition or was that a complete coincidence that you made that decision to make that trip at that time?
2: We really wanted to see uh, my sister and, and my wife's friend. Um, we were actually going to get away for a bit and that seems to be the weekend to go away. God knows what would have happened. Um, if if I was there, as I've lost a lot of friends too.
1: What do you think goes into that choice? Do you think there's some other greater, I guess, force or spirit that has made you made these decisions?
2: I, I think so. In Islam, you sort of have to have a balance of, of, of logic and faith. It's, it's a really interesting thing to come across. And to be honest, I believe in something sort of along the lines of karma. You know, if, if you do good, good will happen to you. And the, the martyrs that actually passed were probably the strongest Muslims and the nicest people you'd find in that mosque. Inevitably, they're the right people to go, and they're the ones that wanted to actually die in the mosque, which is really scary for someone, um, an average Kiwi or Australian. It sounds really scary for someone to say, yeah, actually, I wouldn't mind passing away in my place of worship and the place that I feel so safe in. But for those guys, for example, our cousin and our uncle, they, they were ready to go. No, I mean, they're, they're ready to, to put their life on the line for their, for their family and their friends, and they didn't hesitate.
0: And so, Tyler, as you mentioned, you, you lost an, an uncle and a cousin in that horrific tragedy. Do you have any sense of, well, there's this concept called survivor's guilt that we're about to talk to a psychologist about. Yeah. Do you believe that that is a, is
2: a real thing? Do you feel it? How do you deal with, Absolutely. with that? My father in law is actually he he copped it quite a bit. Reason being is he was there, he was in Christchurch, he turned up two minutes late and the shooter was already there, the terrorist was already there. So he's he's suffering a lot of a lot of guilt. He actually tried to go in and his friend told him not to go in. Even our, our Imam, he has he had a lot of guilt on his shoulders and he publicly told, you know, the public about his guilt. And it's a real thing, it really is. For someone like myself, I think if, if I can't do anything, if if you know, if I'm on the other side of, of the Pacific, then I, I can't do anything. It's a bit different. And saying that, I do regret not being there. I regret not being able to do something. And whatever that might something might have been, it might have saved a life. Yeah, and that's something that you'll never know, but you sort of have to live with that. For myself, you know, And and my family, we've lost at least 15 people that were pretty close to us. So it wasn't easy for the first year to try and get through that and get through that guilt.
0: That was Tyler Harrison Hunt, a New Zealand Muslim. Um, Let's find out more about how you work through the survivor's guilt that comes with these uh, narrowly avoided tragedies.
1: Kim Felmingham is a clinical psychologist and an expert in trauma from Melbourne University. Kim, thanks for joining us. Can you explain what survivor's guilt is and how debilitating it can be?
4: Yeah, sure. Look, survivor's guilt occurs after someone's either experienced a trauma or in this case had a very near miss around a trauma. And look, it's part of post-traumatic stress disorder. Typically, it can occur as the predominant aspect of it, or it also can have all the other PTSD symptoms, which really can be debilitating. So with survivor's guilt, you're going to get a lot of rumination, obsessing about the why this happened, why, why didn't it happen, what what... what is it about me that either led to something happening or people can often blame themselves, which can be really corrosive after a trauma. Um, People can have more flashbacks or memories or nightmares. And in the case of um, a near miss around a trauma, if they've read media reports or heard stories of what's happened to other people, they're the kind of things that will come back to them, um, which can, again, act the similar way, be highly distressing memories or images that people get in their mind. People can often feel the world is unsafe. It's unpredictable. You know, with that self-blame and that guilt, often people get a really low self-esteem. They feel really unworthy. And also it really sensitizes you to death and trauma. So it can actually really make you start to not trust the world not trust your perceptions and judgments
1: what is the best way to process a near miss or a sliding doors moment where your life did take a different path for whatever reason
4: You know, oftentimes people think they can predict events better than they can. Uh, Sometimes people have some quite magical and often implicit beliefs underneath this that, you know, there's only so much there's a finite amount of luck in the world. And if I've been lucky, then that means someone else hasn't. And that can sort of sometimes lead to this self-blame. So we need to work with people around their thinking to start recognising, you know, more of a realistic way of thinking around that, that actually there was no way you could predict this. You know, there isn't such a thing as a finite amount of luck. Oftentimes people often have a view of the world as, you know, it's we call it a just world belief that people believe the world is inherently fair. Actually, it's inherently unfair. So this rumination can just loop you back into the past and tie you back to that trauma. So working with trying to prevent and minimize the rumination. And I think accepting this was just a random event, or if it was caused by someone else placing that responsibility where it really lies. So, you know, we think survivor guilt sometimes can occur because it's a way of protecting you from the either the randomness of an event or the fact that this was done by someone who was really evil. So, Kim,
0: once you've unpacked all those really complex questions about why things happened and, and how much responsibility you should or shouldn't take for these mm. tragedies, do you ever get them to the point where... They can actually turn these tragedies into a a positive, inspirational event that helps them live an even better life.
4: Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, You know, one of the things we know also that can happen with trauma is uh, Post-traumatic growth. So if people have had a near-miss experience, you know, what we're working towards is for people to recognise, look, you know, you've got this chance and how we help people think about that rather than focusing on the terrible outcomes for people who were there, um, because that's what also keeps these ruminations going. Focus on, uh, you know, what you can now do, how can you transfer this guilt into positive action, help people or help maybe prevent These events, and you know, guilt is one of our strongest activators, it can be a very powerful force. But also, recognizing, you know, how would your loved ones feel if you had been caught up in that? So, just really recognizing for people, hey, I'm still alive, really learning to cherish what they do have. So, really having a strong sense of gratitude that can really forge stronger relationships, more meaningful relationships, and meaningful action. Um, And that can be a really uh, powerful uh, way of healing for people and pathway through.
0: That was Kim Felmingham, a clinical psychologist. And Annika, that was fascinating. I love that bit about PTSD, turning it into growth rather than trauma.
1: Yeah, I was trying to think about my own experience and and how... I came out of the earthquake. I think I really relate to the fact that I did think there was only a certain amount of luck. And if you've had a series of unfortunate events that perhaps you think you're due for something good, whereas that's probably not the case. But if it helps people process it, then that's one way we can get through these things.
0: And tomorrow on The Briefing, have you driven around and smelled bushfire smoke anywhere near you? Uh, We're going to talk about backburning as we head into another bushfire season. Speak to you then.